there's anything I can tell you, it's that the best place to hide is in your mind. Welcome back to another episode of Correspondence. I'm Hannah, and today I'm talking with another one of my coworkers over at Coffee or Die magazine. Lauren Kuntz is an Army veteran who studied anthropology in college before deciding to become a journalist. She's also a fairy tale enthusiast, which is what we planned to spend the bulk of the episode discussing. But we went off on a million tangents, including human sacrifice, her least favorite sergeant and his inappropriate shorts, and how prosecutors may have screwed up the investigation into infamous murderer Charles Manson. As a warning, Lauren quite possibly swears more than any guest we've had on yet, so if that offends you, f*** off. Lauren is one of my coworkers at Coffee or Die magazine. I'm on kind of a, a running theme here of talking to my coworkers who I have not met in person ever <laughs> because that's just how news happens now. So Lauren, new friends. yeah, it's nice to actually like see your face and not just your name on Slack. You too. It's so nice to like have an in-person-ish meeting, even if it is over Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, I actually have a face to put with the name. Like so much of mm-hmm. our communication now is just like a sentence here and there. Which is weirdly impersonal. Funny joke, just inserted at an inappropriate time. Yeah, lots of memes and uh, gifs or gifs, whichever way you pronounce it. (laughs) Sorry, choking on my cider. (laughs) Oh, what kind of cider are you drinking? This is a Teton Cider Works out of Washington State Huckleberry Cider. It is a 6.9. I like how you knew all of the facts about it. Are you like a former bartender or, oh, you've got the can. No, I just got the can in front of me. (laughs) let the record show that she was drinking it out of a glass so I was like how the hell did you (laughs) memorize all that information the whole thing doesn't fit in the cup so (laughs) I've got spare in the in the can that's a good can of rice Mm -hmm. it's it's like a 20 ounce can this thing's huge oh that's awesome there used to it used to be called atlas cider I think they had to change and they're now some other a word like avid or something um it's from Oregon and they used to come in these like I swear it was like a 24 ounce bottle, maybe even bigger, like this giant glass bottle that at the time I couldn't possibly drink in one go. So it felt like very wasteful to buy it, drink maybe half of it. And then the rest goes flat. Yep. I I feel your pain. I, I recently started drinking a local brewery. It's called Kitos with two eyes, K-I-I-T-O-S. And they're like dog friendly. And so we go downtown and we'll just hang out at the bar a couple, you know, days a month or um, there's another one nearby it's Templin family brewery in Salt Lake and both of them are great, but keto s- sells their stuff locally at like Smith's and Walmart that shit. Um, and they have a blackberry sour that I've just been nonstop. It's like three cans every time I drink it. I mean, they're only like the regular, like Coke sized cans. Yeah. They're not the 20 ounce monster right. can. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, Lauren's drinking 60 ounces of cider a day. Okay. Hey, uh, it's, uh, it's just time to get lit. Yeah. No judgment on a, a Wednesday night. <laughs> so yeah, so you this mentioned casual drinking, right? <laughs> so you mentioned Salt Lake. Um, that's where you're based, uh, now, although you're recording mm-hmm. from Idaho, cause you're just a, a yep. globetrotter. Um, but can, tell me a little bit about your background. Like where'd you grow up? What kind of things were you into? And then your military career? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I grew up kind of all over the place. My dad, manufactured dvds and as you can see now that's kind of a dead industry so at least it wasn't vhs tapes (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
might as well have been with Blu-ray. Uh, so he manufactured CDs at first. So I was like CDR queen in junior high when everybody was burning mixtapes from LimeWire, getting viruses to the point where their computer is smoking. And so I, you know, my best friend is making me like mixtapes from all of her favorite animes because my family had one computer in like a big room and Denise was allowed to have it in her bedroom. And it was, Denise. it was wild, spoiled, spoiled child. It was great. And so every time I'd go over to her house, we'd just like make mixtapes from various parts of whatever corners of the internet. And uh, so I, I lived in, I was born in California and my whole family pretty much lives there still. Uh, my parents live in Houston now, but uh, we moved from Bakersfield to uh, Utah for a little while. We were in and out of there, in and out of California, kind of back and forth. And then we were in Arizona and uh, back in Utah again. And then from Utah in 03, we moved to Arkansas. And Arkansas was a culture shock to say the least. Um, Utah has a very specific um, prominent religious demographic. What? And, yeah, it's crazy. I don't know, it's weird. What? Which one? Mormons running around. <laughs> And uh, so it was very like, you know, white picket fence, bunch of people. And then you move out to Arkansas and no one has the same religion. It's the Bible Belt. And I had no idea that other ones existed, let alone like that I could be wrong. Like, what? No, Wait, no, are no. You Mormon? My church is true. <laughs> I used to be. Oh, I was going to say, I'm like, <laughs> you're drinking alcohol and I feel like that's wrong. And I work for a coffee company. Like, yeah. Two strikes. <laughs> no, I'm I'm just really bad at religion. I choose not to subscribe to anything because I don't like going to church. I don't like the like after school study that people do about it, you know, like personal like Bible study and, group and stuff. Yeah, I'm like I'm I'm good without all that. I don't I'm the I was same bad way. enough about regular homework. Like I'm not much of a joiner. So youth group was always kind of weird for me. I don't like, I'm kind of like a contrarian. I don't like having things in common mm -hmm. with people. My mom always told me I had a oppositional defiance disorder. And I'm Her. like, no, I don't. <laughs> That's not fair though. Cause you can't <laughs> argue that without sounding like you're proving the point. Oh man. Okay. So you, you yeah. moved to Arkansas. And, and I swear to God, like people are still making moonshine and running it out there. Like they're still pulling bodies out of the white river from prohibition. It's, it's mad crazy out there. I don't, it was weird. Uh, so we left Arkansas in like 07, we moved out to Dallas. Uh, I lived in Denton, Texas for, uh, two years. It's where I graduated high school. And then I, I did like one semester of college before my parents moved back to Utah and I was 19 years old and broke. So I went with them and, uh, we were back in Utah until, uh, 2014 from 09 to 14. And then I joined the army because I had some just terribly toxic friends. I felt like I was treading water. I had done a study abroad in 2013 and just like knew that I wanted to be an archeologist. That was it. Uh, I helped on the Lambayeque Valley Biohistory Project where we, there was actually like some corruption in the Ministry of Culture in Peru that year. And so we weren't even allowed to dig. So I didn't even get that experience. I, it was just lab the whole time. And so we sexed 
and aged the skeletons. So like we had probably like 102, 108-ish samples uh, and they're like bags of bodies. And so like you go and you get a body from the pile and it's not always complete. Sometimes it's like two or three bags and it's like just some fingers and maybe a humerus and like. So these are human bodies. Like I'm Mm -hmm. not familiar with that particular dig, but uh, like how old are they? So they're about a thousand years old. They're of the Moche culture, which is an Andean prehistory uh, before the Spaniards came. And um, the Matrix 101 was the site that we were um, doing the lab work on the bodies for. And there was several human remains that had voluntarily jumped into a pit about 40 meters deep. And then because of a series of El Nino events and La Nina events, so it's a constant cycle of flooding and drought and then floods and drought and floods and drought. And so they call it a matrix because it's basically cement. And so instead of like an archeologist with like a paintbrush and he's just like gently brushing the dust from the bones and like revealing everything no we were having like bamboo skewers and toothbrushes and like trying to get the dirt off of these bones and they were all like in the lab they'd already been dug up and like put into the museum so they were hanging out just in storage and so our group came down and we did the like paperwork on them essentially and so we'd have you, you go get your body from the pile, you bring it over to your desk and you like take everything out and you search every bone for things like trauma. So like cut marks, tool marks, bite marks, even like, you know, just weird stuff. Um, but also like sickness sometimes shows up in bone, um, something called periostitis, which looks like a sponge. Um, it's just like really porous. Mm-hmm. And so you'll see that sometimes so you just mark it down and like keep going. And so we did that for like six weeks and I was like, this is what I want to do forever and ever. Thank you very much. Goodbye. That's really cool. Even though it's disappointing that you didn't get to dig, but just doing that much, mm-hmm. I'm sure you learned a ton, uh, but stuff. I can't get past the, the little snippet that you put in there. They voluntarily jumped into this 40 foot pit. Uh-huh. Uh, were there theories about why? Human sacrifice. Oh, okay. Yeah. A thousand bodies jumped into a pit. <laughs> Yeah, over we're, like many we're years. sure over if, if it was over years or if it was one giant event because of like the El Nino stuff going on. They think the and I by they I mean my um, my professor Dr. Hagen Klaus. Um, he he was saying that it was probably because of the weather events that they were petitioning to the gods, like stop it, please. <laughs> we just want crops. That's it. That's all we want. And so they would just like. Maybe it was um, like war prisoners or maybe it was slaves or maybe it was an honor to jump. It's all theory at this point. You know, there's not a lot of written records. Um, and so they, they would jump off of this, what's called a waka, which is a, it's like a dirt t- a burial complex. A lot of the time there's like tombs of the elite that are buried inside and like murals and engravings it's really pretty um but it's basically like a sand castle but massive and um so they'd use the top of them kind of like how the Aztecs have like Tenochtitlan it's like a pyramid kind of a thing so they'd use the top of them for like ceremonial use and uh they just jumped into this big hole and we think some of them got buried alive because we found one who had like fingers in the cranium 
And so like my, my buddy red pulled one of the bodies that had just like a dirt covered skull. And so as he's like cleaning the skull out, right. He's got to pull all the dirt out. You got to do it kind of carefully. Cause you never know what you're going to find. And he keeps finding fingers and like pulling finger elements out little bones. And we think maybe he got buried with his hands covering his face. And then as he decayed, you know, the fingers fall in through the nose cavity. And so that's how it gets like into the like whole bottom of the head or whatever. Oh, wow. And that's so really interesting. If Gruesome, he was buried interesting. alive. Yeah, it's awful. And so if he was buried alive, he like probably covered his mouth to like keep from breathing in the dirt. Um, but also some of them were found with their arms, like in front of them, like, so like bent above their head, like they were trying to brace themselves in the fall. And so we think that, that it was probably like they were either pushed or they jumped, whatever it was, they went in alive and. Yeah. I guess 40 feet is a survivable distance to fall then, especially if there's but like 40 other... meters is not. Oh, it's 40 meters, not 40 feet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gotcha. It's, it's, so that's what's four times three. I can't do math. Four is <laughs> 120 feet. 120 Ish. feet. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's, gotcha. I was thinking feet and I'm like, wait, that's actually not that high. <laughs> The, the wakas usually are about 40 feet high. That's, that's usually about kind of, they're usually like two or three stories. Um, but the pit, was, it was deep. I don't even know how they found it. Probably like ground penetrating radar or something, but, um, but yeah, that's, uh, so I got to do that for like six weeks and we got to, after a couple of weeks of the, once we finished the skeletons there, we got to kind of travel all over the coast. We stayed in Waras. We got to go up into the Andes and hike around at this place called Shafin de Wantar. And it's like a priest complex in the middle of like 15,000 feet. Like I got altitude sickness and was just incapacitated the following day. I on some coca leaves though. So I did do cocaine. Man, I, I really want coca leaves to be legal in the u.s because i heard <laughs> that they're just like the greatest like caffeine alternative i had a it friend who weird, went yeah. to um i she was in brazil i think mm-hmm. and she didn't realize that that's like what they made tea out of there so people kept oh, cool. offering her tea and she really likes tea <laughs> so she was like yeah i'll drink that tea and then mm-hmm. after three days without any sleep she started going insane she was like why can't i sleep all i've been doing is drinking tea it's just cocaine tea. It's fine. That's it's casual. cocaine tea. <laughs> yeah. Totally normal. <laughs> it's just not cut with, you know, gasoline and baby aspirin. <laughs> that seems a lot safer, really. Pure. It's pure. Pure. It's organic. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they were like, it'll cure your altitude sickness. It'll be fine. And I'm like, I don't believe you, but all right. And uh, turns out it didn't work. And I was just so fucking sick. Uh, I did not leave the hostel for like a day and a half. Uh, it was awful. And all my friends got to go see like baby llamas and like get pictures with them and pet them. Like so mad. So we, we came back and I was like, well, I'm going to have to do this forever. And so I tried to get enrolled in school, failed out so much. I like, I was just doing shitty and it's because I have ADHD and can't function in a normal environment. So I ended up quitting. I was just working as a waitress at Applebee's for, you know, a couple of years and was like, wow, life has hit a, hit a peak. And if this is peak, I don't know what bottom is. So 
I, uh, I started asking around for, you know, recruiters and stuff for the air force, because everybody says that the air force is the nicest one, right? That's when they have like five-star cafeterias and, you know, you get to drink champagne at work. So I was convinced that that was it. And I was going to go be a pilot and fly fighter jets and do all the cool guy shit. And then I uh, was obviously something happened and the air force recruiter guy did not show up to the lunch we had scheduled. And so the army dude was over in like the other side of the room. Cause it was like a joint office space because I guess air force doesn't get their own offices. I don't know what that's about, but, but apparently they're bougie enough that they can stand up potential recruits. <laughs> exactly. Rude in my opinion. And so I, I went over and talked to the army guys. Cause he was like, Psst. Are you trying to talk to the Air Force? <laughs> you can't pick your job there. Come over here. They'll let you pick your job. And I was like, oh, oh well, you, he's Army. He, mu- you know, he must be telling the truth. He's a recruiter. <laughs> Why would they lie to me? And so I went over there and talked to him and got up involved in that. And the uh, last thing I remember, I was like enlisted. Um, but then I, I had braces too at the time. And so I wasn't allowed to like, immediately ship off and so I had to do like future soldier training whatever the fuck that is and so we'd go out in like the backside of the offices and like try and form up as like rando assholes who have no idea what they're doing while some recruiter tries to yell at us like a drill sergeant and can't keep a straight face the whole time and I'm like wow I'm really out of shape I was like 23. I should not be this winded doing nothing. That's like a grandma in the military when you're first joining. Like I Uh realized that when I went to um, like Marine Corps basic training, Mm -hmm. there was a 25 year old and all the other kids were making fun of him. They're like, oh, you're so old. And I'm like, wait, I'm 26. (laughs) Oh man, all the little kids. And so I went to basic and I was like, if these 19 year old shitheads can do it, I can do it. And that's what got me through it. And I'm, I was still shitty at it, but I finished. That's the important part. Yeah. And so I, I was in the army for just under five years. I was a 35 Mike human intelligence collector. And so I did interrogations and military source operations. Um, mostly though, I just did debriefings and sat on my ass. So <laughs> that sounds less exciting, but also more yeah. truthful. Everyone tells you you're going to learn all this cool shit and you do learn some of it. But in application, it is almost never used. You'll use it maybe one deployment out of your four. What was like your most exciting deployment? So I went to Qatar as my second deployment. Um, My first one was to Korea and I was mostly just drunk through most of that. Um, (laughs) Korea is a very uh, alcohol saturated location and it's delightful, but you won't remember a lot of it. And So that was 2015. I was only there for like seven months, but then I went to Qatar for 12, um, with the 513th and my brigade. And we didn't deploy as a brigade. I like flew out there on my own, um, on a commercial flight. And, uh, so I hooked up with my unit in Kuwait. Once I got there, it was like 18 fucking hours. It was the worst fucking flight of my life. And I take that back. The worst fucking flight of my life was the flight back. Um, (laughs) And so I hooked up with my unit in Kuwait because that's where like our forward headquarters was. And, and then they got me a flight to uh, Qatar via like ULN. So I ended up flying C-130 to Qatar. 
got off at all you did airbase and my unit picked me up the my partners that uh so when i was replacing the other one i would be working with use my my nco and then um so that was my debriefings deployment and so i we were based out of cutter and then when my nco got replaced we really upped the ante on our mission and i'm really proud of it we did a great job and we started to branch out into other countries. And so we were in like Bahrain and the UAE and, um, you know, doing missions kind of all over the CENTCOM AO. It was great. Um, we wanted to go to Saudi, but we're women and we couldn't get the, um, the visas in time. And we'd have been like confined to the American compound the whole time. Wait, you needed special woman visas to get to Saudi? <laughs> no, we just wouldn't have been allowed off the compound without like a male escort and we're like first of all i'm insulted and then secondly that's stupid and the mission is not worth that um yeah i i have a lot of respect for the um female engagement teams or, or whatever mm-hmm. the special name for them is because i'm like i said a contrarian so i whenever i see like journalists especially over there like yeah. playing along with all of the sexist rules or whatever. I'm like, you know what? I would Wild. be dead in five minutes. Cause I, mm-hmm. if somebody told me to go stand on the side, cause I'm a woman, I'd be like, fuck that. I'm going to stay right here. I'll punch you in the throat. Like what <laughs> do you fuck off, man? Like, <laughs> oh no. I, uh, yeah, it was difficult. And I'm like, you get dirty looks sometimes at the mall, but like <laughs> nobody in Cutter would ever actually say anything to you. Not unless your shorts were like above half of your thigh. Yeah. <laughs> But that I never I can work with there. a little bit, but yeah. yeah. And it, it's mostly the like the ladies and the hijabs and the like the niqabs that'll come up to you and be like, hey, you need to wear longer shorts. And like they're polite about it. They're not rude. They're like, but like that's their norm for over there. And like, so we were we were pretty respectful. We tried to, you know, wear always long pants and we didn't wear any tank tops. We always wore short sleeves. Hmm. Um, just so like we weren't bringing attention to ourselves and um the other thing is like we want people to think we're being respectful because that's what we're trying for we don't want to be assholes the whole time Americans already have enough of a name <laughs> like <laughs> yeah there's a fine line between being an asshole though I feel like and then being like told mm-hmm. that you can't do your job and it does not surprise me that you would take great offense to that just from the little bit that we've interacted online <laughs> mm-hmm. I am uh what you would call a strong personality Lauren <laughs> speaks her mind is how I would say it. I, yeah, I'm not afraid of my, um, my opinions on things. I understand that many of my opinions are opinions though, and not like fact. So that is a good and sadly rare, um, like self-awareness to have. I like to think I'm a little self-aware sometimes. No, that is very self-aware. I feel like most people are like, this is my opinion and it's absolutely mm-hmm. right. And you're a monster because you have a different opinion. <laughs> and I'm like, that escalated really quickly. Right. What year did you get out of the army? I got out in 2018. So I, I did my deployment and then I came back and had two months left in the army. And was just like, peace. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm out. Goodbye, everyone suck my dick on the way out so they i came back for i was doing pt for like a week with the unit for the physical training stuff in the mornings and we had this one fucking sergeant uh i'm calling him out sergeant motherfucker this dude i met him in ait our advanced individual training after basic and 
homeboy was doing like butterfly stretches, you know, where you like put your feet together and your knees are splayed oh, out. Yeah. And he had cut the lining out of his own PT shorts. So everybody was watching him do this with his balls out. And we're just like, <laughs> motherfucker, put those away. No one wants to see that. You're like 40. Hmm. Not are, to say that 40 year old men are not attractive, but they were not when I was 23. And I was like, get the, ew, ew. Well, also that's not, like, that's not a context where you want to, you know, be looking right. at a 40 year olds, 40 year olds balls. Like, you know, yeah. if that's your thing out of the workplace, that's fine. Look, Chris <laughs> Evans can come over any day he wants. He will be welcome. Uh are those yeah. are the PT shorts like the equivalent? Because I'm a civilian, obviously, so like mm-hmm. I don't get all the insider lingo quite yet. But are they like PT- basketball shorts, but with a liner? Okay, so they're not the equivalent of Ranger panties. No, they're not quite. Um, okay, the Army PT shorts are different from the Marines. Um, and so the Army PT shorts were like the swish material, where like in Seinfeld when he used it's just like the swishy pants the whole time, and that's awful. They have. But they look like basketball shorts, but they come to just above the knee. And then they've got a liner inside that just keeps everything where it's supposed to sit. Unless and, you remove it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you're letting your dudes flow free. Uh-huh. And Sergeant was somehow my squad leader when I got back from Cutter. And I was like, this motherfucker, how is he still in the army? Like, he didn't like assault someone yet. Like, I thought he would have at least. Uh, or like other kinds of sexual harassment. Um, and so he, we were running one morning and I'm behind because I haven't done PT in the fucking year. I've been deployed and it's 900 degrees in Cutter, And we didn't want to go outside. So we didn't, we were deployed. We could say that. Also, I was getting out. Like I didn't give a shit. And you were on the like a uh, senior slump or whatever. Uh-huh. Just coasting by. <laughs> Oh yeah. And I was like, I'm fucking done with PT. Goodbye. And, uh, came back and Sergeant was trying to like run us for PT and he's running next to me. And he's like, keep up Koontz right here, right here. Keep up with me. And I was like, Sergeant, this body is going to do what it's going to do. You need to lower your expectations here. And he's like, just remember who you're talking to and don't talk to me like that. I'm like, I don't give a shit. Take it up with the commander when we get back. Like, I don't, I'm out of here in a week, man. What are you going to do? Fire me? Yeah. Like what? Okay. Get that paperwork started. Spell my name, right? It's with a C. Don't put a U where the double O is. So you're not doing the anthropology thing right now. You're not, you know, doing the, the CSI bones analysis Mm -hmm. thing. Uh, What, what led you to journalism instead? Uh, It was actually the George Floyd riots. Um, Yeah. So I was, Finishing up my degree at Utah Valley University after I got out. Um, And so I I majored in anthropology. That is what my degree is in. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a minor in art history. And so I was taking like some photography classes that summer. And it was just part of the art history minor that I needed some fine arts credits for. And so I was watching the riots unfold in real time and I was watching this like beautiful photojournalism come out of it. And I was like, you know what? If archeology span falls through, like journalism is a solid second choice that I can get behind and I'm happy to just jump into that. And so I applied for grad school after I graduated and uh, got denied uh, as you do your first time applying, it's normal. And uh, I, 
was like, okay, well now I need a real person job. Cause I was working security at a, the Adobe building in Lehigh, Utah. And it was not paying well. And my, it was like supplemental income because the army GI bill pays you like a monthly stipend when you're full-time enrolled. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, I need a job that's going to actually pay me money so I can keep my condo because I love my condo so much. And, uh, I have like three roommates, so it's not like just me in this <laughs> condo, but it's, it's a, a condo in the era of nobody can afford to live alone. <laughs> Correct. And I'm 30 years old and not married. So I don't get any fancy tax credits (laughs) or, you know, good credit for just being connected to someone on paper. Like (laughs) discrimination. You do one of those on paper marriages. (laughs) I'm this close. I have proposed to all of my friends and they have all told me no. Oh, it's not looking good. Mm -mm. It's a lot of rejection to go through, you know? like just it'll help both of us the tax write-offs the tax Tax benefits come on my car insurance is 140 fucking dollars like a month married Uh uh-huh usaa in utah and uh they hate me i guess so i have never understood car i've been very fortunate my entire life to have extremely ridiculously cheap car insurance Mm -hmm. like i just for a while i thought it was just because i was on like the family like discounted rate or whatever. Yep. Um, but I just got finally my own insurance at age 26. Um, and it's still only like 300 something for six months. And I'm, oh, nice. I just like, don't understand how that happens. Whereas my boyfriend pays like, like you probably like $160 yeah. a month. It's batshit insane. And it's because I'm not married. <laughs> my sister is 27 and she pays, I think like $60. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. It's no, no, no. She just married. That's it. <laughs> married people are more responsible, Lauren. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. That's what she said this weekend when she literally nagged my parents into Disneyland. <laughs> She's yeah. more responsible. I've got like all this time off and we're going to kick myself. We're going to kick ourselves if we don't go this weekend right now. I could be pregnant next time. I'll have an infant. We're we're never gonna go in the next five years. You can't take an infant to Disneyland. It's just impractical. She makes a point there. I'm on that same page. Although I've always been like skeptical of adults who like going to Disneyland without (laughs) children. So skeptical of adults that push Disneyland to that degree. Like it's cool. I'll go with some friends. Like, yeah, I got a day off. Let's I'm already in California. Let's do it. I'm having fun. When it gets to the point where she will not drop the subject, it gets to be like, are you okay? Are you you like, do you need help? (laughs) Blink twice if you can. Okay. All right. All right. She's been indoctrinated into the cult of Walt Disney. She makes Excel spreadsheets for crowd sizes throughout the year. And like line times. I'm not kidding. Like (laughs) she has an obsession. (laughs) Wow. Imagine that energy channeled towards something else. <laughs> no, I'm sure oh. your sister is lovely. And now that we're on the topic of Walt Disney, I feel like we've we've gone from like <laughs> dead bodies in Peru to hey. shitty like <laughs> army sergeants <laughs> to journalism to now finally the topic that we were supposed to discuss, which is fairy tales. Uh, you're into fairy tales. I do. I love them. I think that they're a beautiful statement on the culture that they come from. Like you'll see different 
themes and different elements come out of like Irish folklore based or like versus Indian folklore or Native American folklore versus French folklore and everything changes and everything has a different like lesson to be learned and I think that those are just fantastic when did you like stumble upon this as an interest did that come out of your anthropology studies or was this pre that I was a Disney kid like Taylor my sister is very much a Disney kid along with me but like I grew up on Pocahontas and Hunchback of Notre Dame and you know those 90s renaissance films that came out when animation was really making a comeback and Atlantis and um, Treasure Planet they're all just incredible animation and uh I'm that weirdo that watched the director's commentary on Beauty and the Beast special edition and The Little Mermaid when it came out. And like, I love watching the behind the scenes and the Easter eggs. And part of that was the movies growing up. And so like, I got Pocahontas and the Hunchback of Notre Dame from the Tooth Fairy. Um, like woke up to those VHSs under my pillow. I don't even know how my parents put them there without me noticing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's more ambitious than just like some quarters yeah, or something. Like, I was like, what is this you know mm. <laughs> on repeat they would just I'm mm, I watched quest for Camelot at one point so many times oh, that I my mom that returned it to blockbuster early because <gasps> she was so sick of that if I didn't have you uh, like I would on repeat on repeat quest for Camelot I feel like uh is an underappreciated movie I know it's not Disney I can't remember who did it but I was obsessed with that movie Quest for Camelot is WB and it is a crack film. That is Pierce Brosnan at the height of James Bond fame. It is, um, who does the girl voice? It's Carrie Elwes. I, I can't remember her name. She's actually kind of an unknown. Uh, I haven't seen her in much before or since. Um, but Carrie Elwes is in it. Gary Oldman is in it. What? Um, oh yeah. This is a fucking all-star cast. Celine fucking Dion did the Grammy award winning song, The Prayer for this film. I need to rewatch Quest for Camelot now. That shit insane. And like the villain is just pure chaos. It just, there's a chicken with a blade for a beak who does taxi impersonations. There's Acme makes an appearance on the fucking potion bottle. It's like Acme potions. And I'm, it's- Wow fucking crack film and it has some of the best music and best voice acting and animation to have come from the 90s they recently put it on netflix so i've done oh my well okay now i have as soon as my boyfriend gets home i'm putting quest for camelot on this is gonna go a lot better than the last kids movie i made him watch from my childhood which was the last unicorn (gasps) oh man which i remembered being obsessed with when i was like (laughs) six and we were watching it like while camping and we'd done shrooms. And oh no. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> I was watching it and I'm like, this is so weird. Why did my mom let me watch this as a kid yeah. so many times? I tried to watch that one. I really did. Cause I didn't watch it as a kid. I tried to watch it as an adult because I really do love animation and that's we, a classic. We didn't finish it, but I, when I was a kid, I thought that was great. And the soundtrack is done by America, which, you know, nice. it's a great soundtrack regardless of, of the weird animation and like the, they have the harpy in there at one point, mm-hmm. the like bird thing. <laughs> I remember this as a kid too. Like, so 20 years later, I still have the vivid picture of this giant bird with saggy old lady boobs oh, in my no. mind. <laughs> I was like, how did they put that in a kid's movie? 
my traumatization in kids movies was quest uh no not quest for camel it was um the black cauldron i don't think i ever saw that one it was terrifying as a child like there's a demon lord that like satan horns and like he has his soul like ripped out of his body and like flesh falling off of his face and he's just a skull face and i was eight watching this because it came out like 1955 i don't fucking remember oh jeez it's old yeah it's like alice in wonderland era Mm. and uh it was a lot there's (laughs) a lovable sidekick that (gasps) self-sacrifices and there's like a witch who i'm pretty sure is the same witch from the sword and the stone that like becomes that weird sexy squirrel uh (laughs) it's it's a trip man sexy animals are very prevalent in uh Mm -hmm. kids like fairy tale movies it's really weird oh yeah it's it's yeah so all of the movies so far um that you've referenced are not like you know the girly girl princess types were you Mm -hmm. into like the cinderellas and the snow whites back in the 90s i watched them but my favorites were always the adventure movies like treasure planet atlantis beauty and the beast like i i get so salty when people give beauty and the beast shit for like bestiality and stockholm syndrome like no nah, bitch could leave whenever she wanted as proven in the movie you assholes and then secondly like the beast is the like he's a person in a beast body he's not actually an animal you guys like calm down it's fine um she wants adventure in the great wide somewhere. That's how it goes. <laughs> so I, I really resonated with that. I wanted to just have adventure after adventure after adventure. And just um, like to this day, one of my favorite sick day films is Sahara with Matthew McConaughey. That and, oh, you got to watch that. That one's beautifully done. It is just fun the whole time. Um, it's it's a Dirk Pitt novel. So it's based on like Clive Cussler. And I tried to read some of his books and I was just like, this is so sexist. It hurts. <laughs> I cannot keep reading this. I was like crossing out words and like correcting things. And I was like, all right, this is to a point where I should not be doing this. I hope it wasn't a library book. No, it was, I found it like on a shelf in our deployment where like we <laughs> were living in these like refurbished uh freight containers like stacked in a warehouse like apartments it was really odd very trendy Um, now yeah (laughs) works for me it was like 50 fucking degrees inside of them like it was freezing and so I had to like get a shit ton of like blankets and sweaters and there was some books in the like sort of lobby-ish area um and so I I found like Jurassic Park out there and this Clive Cussler novel. I was like, he's an adventure guy. I've watched Sahara. It'll be fine. I've never read one of his books before then. And I started reading and it was like, what the fuck? It's like, she was a great shot for a woman. And I was like, <laughs> just excuse me? Leave the for a woman part out, please. Well, you just gotta like, <laughs> and that wasn't it either. It was like every paragraph had something to that effect in it uh like her right hook was really solid I wasn't expecting that from how small she was and it's just god damn it okay so you like the adventure stories Mm -hmm. do those I mean Beauty and the Beast obviously yes but do the other ones have like roots in folklore and fairy tales as well um 
Sometimes. Um, like the Hunchback of Notre Dame has origins you can trace to like the Rumpelstiltskin story hmm. um, in terms of the ugly beast. But it also is kind of a Beauty and the Beast story on top of that as well. And um, the way that the hunchback becomes the friend and, you know, beauty is found within kind of a thing. And granted, the book is not quite as uh, kind. (laughs) Um, I'm pretty sure, and I haven't read The Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo, but I... I Googled it a a while back and I remember, I'm pretty sure that Frollo eventually does rape Esmeralda and that she does die and Quasimodo cannot save her. And I'm pretty sure Phoebus dies as well. It's very French. Well, yeah, Victor Hugo also wrote Les Miserables, right? yeah. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't expect the Hunchback of Notre Dame to have a uh, a Mm -hmm. happy ending. It's also just like bananas long. And all of Victor Hugo's books are like that. I tried to read Les Miserables, the unabridged version, and he dedicates like four chapters to the fucking Battle of Waterloo and then another six to just the sewer systems of Paris. And I guess you just kind of need this context to understand like when Marius gets stuck in the sewers and Jean Valjean's like dragging him away from the barricades. No, you you can just tell me that he was stuck in the sewers and I'll believe you that the sewer system is complex. It's like um, Moby Dick, basically. It's just mm-hmm. like one long book about whaling in whatever century that was. Yeah, it is difficult to get. It's a slog in some ways. Like once you get to the plot, the plot's great, but you've got to like really work your way there. And it's uh, quite the event. <laughs> so, um, and you mentioned like, folklore and fairy tales from other cultures too are you pretty familiar Mm -hmm. with like non-european folklore like you mentioned native american and indian not as much as i'd like to be um so i i did some research on the lost city of divraca a couple months ago and um it's it's rumored to be the lost city of uh lord krishna who is a part of the indian um creation myth and I say myth but I don't mean it in the like it's definitely not true and it's a legend I just mean it in terms of like the the stories that come out of it Mm -hmm. and um the Marabhata is their like holy book that is now confirmed to be a historical record because of the findings at Divraka but the problem is that the Divraka um like existence and the archaeology that's happened there is so difficult because most of it is underwater and India only has like three working underwater archaeologists as as far as I know it may have changed in the last couple of years because the research was a little old mm-hmm. um, but the the last I heard that they they were struggling with their underwater archaeology department with the government and so there may be some private institutions that work it um, but I'm not entirely sure on that but the research at Divraka is extensive from one archaeologist, and I can't remember his name. Um, but I watched a like a YouTube video from his daughter; it was really good. And um, but the Marapata was like a it was a creation myth, and in, including like Vishna and uh, Vishnu and Krishna and uh, some of the other minor deities from the Hindu uh, canon, and 
uh, I learned a lot while I was doing that. And I was like, this is really interesting. And like, this could be really cool movies. And, um, but I mean, maybe they already are. It's, you know, I don't watch as much Bollywood as I should probably get my hands on. Stuff is gold. Um, I watched a version of Night and Day that was Bollywood. I think it's called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And there's like dance numbers and the actors are great. Like it's so much fun. And I, I really enjoy learning about the different cultures, like creation myths and religious canon that comes through from like antiquity, right? That's, that's part of the beauty of archaeology is you, you learn all this stuff. And so like Quetzalcoatl and the, the, um, the deities from the Aztec canon and the fairy tales that come along with those. And granted, I haven't read as much as I'd like to, um, but they exist and they're there. And a lot of the modern uh, descendants have also like written books and, and like told the stories that their parents told them. And um, I, I speak like enough Spanish to get into trouble and then to get myself back out of it again. Um, Important. I wouldn't, yeah, I, I don't know if I'd call myself fluent, that's for sure. Um, but, but I love reading like the Spanish fairy tales. And so when I watched Coco, all I did was sob through the whole movie. Oh because I, I learned Spanish from Mexicans. And so like, I was just like watching my friends on TV and like their culture and like, and it's so brightly colored and the music is beautiful and I love it. Yeah, anyway, I just, I get wrapped up in a lot of that and how it influences thought and how it influences the way you like go about things. Cause these fairy tales were lessons. Um, like the Cinderella fairy tale in European folklore was, like, you know, marriage and, and wealth equals escape from poverty. And, you know, you need to find a, a rich husband because otherwise you're going to be scrubbing floors for the rest of your life and it's not going to be fun. And, you know, there's lessons there for our, you know, archaic society. It's, it doesn't really work the same way now. No, the Cinderella one is interesting though, because, um, I mean, a lot of fairy tales, you can find different versions of throughout cultures, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Like Snow White, Cinderella, there's different versions throughout the continents. Um, so it's not like it's unique to one location. Mm -hmm. um, but when we were doing research for the, um, we did the Grimm Brothers um, yeah. two episodes ago. And I found out that Cinderella, um, there's like a, a Middle Eastern version. Ooh. And that one was very interesting to me. And I think I liked it better because it was like the, the daughter- um, she like stumbled upon a talking cow that was like her reincarnated mother or something. And the cow kind of like gave her instructions Whoa. to navigate the evil stepmother's like influence. Um, and then I can't remember if it was the cow that was the witch, but like there was a witch and she told her, um, the, the daughter like to do something for her. Mm -hmm. And the daughter saw that the witch had like gold or something in her pockets, gold and jewels. Um, and she dropped them. And so she like gave them back or something to the old lady, mm -hmm. uh, which signaled like goodness to her. Um, right. So the old lady then turns into basically the fairy godmother. And mm -hmm. then when one of the stepsisters like stalks her, her stepsister to figure out like how she's getting all this cool stuff and like all these blessings, she steals from the old lady and the old lady curses her. And 
she gave she did two things but I can only remember that one was like a donkey's penis would grow out of her <gasps> forehead Awkward. obviously that's the one I remember um, <laughs> so then when the like prince comes along the the stepmother she like tries to cut the the donkey dick off of her daughter's forehead and it keeps like growing back or whatever and so it grows back but bigger and harder right (laughs) yes (laughs) more erect (laughs) so in the end like cinderella in that case like gets the prince but i like that one a little bit better because it's like she does a good deed where i feel Mm -hmm. like the one in the grim brothers story it's like it's just luck like she doesn't actually do anything good and then like the the older sisters have their eyes pecked out by birds and they cut their feet parts off so they can fit into the goddamn shoe <laughs> yeah and I'm like how did Cinderella get her foot in there after the blood stains like <laughs> what is happening oh right. man the Grimm brothers are dark yeah and, but I mean that's what the stories were and you know Red Riding Hood was don't fucking go out alone in the woods that's a good lesson to teach young children I guess thank you my favorite murder don't go in the forest <laughs> it's funny because um when we were talking about fairy tales I like found this book called for the wolf which is it's a little too like YA slanted for my taste um but it's pretty interesting because it like combines the obvious like red riding hood but also Mm -hmm. there's um some strong beauty and the beast undertones in there so far like I'm only a few chapters in and it's entertaining but it's Mm -hmm. kind of it's interesting seeing how the author uh who's named Hannah Witten uh meshes multiple fairy tales together I kind of yeah. like that so the Witcher series is a lot of Slavic fo- folklore and fairy tales and inserting the Witcher into those fairy tales um there is a Beauty and the Beast version that is is really interesting and uh, some of the the Witcher stories are just short stories like collaborated and not collaborate collated collated mm-hmm. into like a bigger volume and um, my boyfriend and I were listening to it on our way from College Station to uh, Houston one time. And I was like, is this, this is, this is, hey. And <laughs> like recognizing like elements that, that are pulled from different stories. And so like Slavic folklore has a really interesting uh, version of Beauty and the Beast um, where the beauty is like pulled from her home um, whether because she has like sick family and the beast can offer wealth and, and health or because, you know, the father's the merchant, he steals the rose and like, she's payment essentially. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it, there, there's various versions of the origin and like why she goes to stay with the beast. And then there's like, she has to stay there for a year without, um, revealing his physical like princely form and he is a beast in the day and a man at night and he has to sleep next to her um unless and then if she and she like can't light a normal candle in the dark and like there's a magic candle Uh uh-huh and like the magic keeps it dark for the most part but you need a magic a more magic candle to like light if you do want to see him and so there's like a witch that comes in and like sells her a more magic candle to see who she's sleeping with because it could be a monster and that's like that's the lesson it could be a monster but you have to trust him and if you trust him then he won't be a monster wait i don't but like you that don't trust him that he is i think like, you should get to know who you're sleeping with agreed oh yeah like this whole like wait till you 
are married to have sex. I'm like, how about fuck you? Cause no, like I got things I need to learn about a person and things I got to teach a person like, no, no, no. Don't. So, so not on board with that particular fairy tale. then. Near. No, I do uh, like that about the witcher though. I mm-hmm. think the one, I only read one book of the series. I've seen the show so far. Um, the one I read, I think was the last wish. It's the one that's almost exclusively short stories. Mm-hmm. yeah that's what that's what my boyfriend and I started first and so it's like the the striga and the uh the beauty of the beast alternate mm-hmm. with the vampire and the beast and like um it was really good I really enjoyed it and some of the some one of these days I'm going to log into his audible and finish it but I have not <laughs> yet that seems like such an easy thing to do Lauren I know Listen. Add it to the list of several other books that I need to tack on. I mean, audiobooks are really saving my butt right now. Mm-hmm. I but I can only listen to very specific ones on there. Like I can do thrillers on mm-hmm. audiobooks. Um, that's about it. It has to be something that's yeah. like pretty easy to listen along to and also really engaging because otherwise I'll tune out. And with mm-hmm. audiobooks, you can't just like flip backwards a few pages to like figure right. out what you missed. So they're like hit or miss for me, but also like crucial. I started um, Peril in the drive up from Salt Lake City to uh, Pocatello. And the chapters are actually relatively short. And that whole business with Millie is just the prologue of the book. Like, is that the um, Woodward book? Yeah, that's okay. uh, Bob Woodward and um, I think Mark, uh, Matt Costa. What is his name? Bob Woodward. I can do certain and nonfiction Robert too. Costa. Robert Costa. Okay. I think. And it's, it's the book about like, uh, Trump's presidency and, um, the like sorted, tr- uh, tumultuous events that were kind of going on behind the scenes and at the same time, he's kind of telling the story of how Biden decided to run and like what got him to be like, all right, fine, I'll do it. So speaking of nonfiction, uh, you're also reading another very interesting nonfiction book right now about a certain mass murderer. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, I do not want that guy to take up any more rent space in my head, but here he is. And Charles Manson of the Manson family murders 1969 and the death of Sharon Tate and her unborn child um JC bring uh I can't say his name Volkow Frykovsky I think um and several other victims uh, and across town there was um Leno and Rosemary LaBianca and um there there I think was two more victims at the Cielo Drive house. One was just a kid and he was there visiting the, he's 19 years old and he was there visiting the um, other 19 year old groundskeeper. They were friends and he was like leaving out the gate and that's when they shot him. Uh-huh. And it was like on, his, he almost missed it by minutes. And then uh, the murders up at the house were incredibly violent and um, genuinely awful. 
And then across town, a couple days later, the LaBiancas were killed, um, seemingly at random. They thought the cases were unconnected. They thought the LaBiancas were a copycat case at first, um, but they were not. And the family members of Manson's little weird cult were uh, ultimately convicted and sentenced and are guilty. Um, Linda Kasabian was kind of the star witness in the trial. And she spilled the beans on everybody. She turned state witness. She was a family member. She was the lookout for the uh, Sharon Tate murder. And then she was, uh, I believe, the getaway driver for the LaBianca murders. And so she wasn't the person who plunged the knife, but she was an accomplice. And she did not call the police. And she was involved with it. Mm-hmm. Um, she did show real remorse on the stand. Um, and so she was given immunity for a lot of the charges. And now she lives kind of a quiet life away from the spotlight. Um, Did she serve any time? I don't think so. Oh, wow. She got very lucky Mm -hmm. then. Yeah. She, they gave her immunity um, from a lot of the prosecution. I think she was put on probation because Mm -hmm. that's pretty normal. Uh, But yeah, she ended up like having kids and a kind of relatively normal life. She did speak out in a couple of interviews for TV in the UK and here um, but ultimately she doesn't really talk about it. She doesn't grant a lot of interviews. She doesn't talk to a lot of people. And this reporter, Bob O'Neill, or excuse me, not Bob, Tom, Tom O'Neill, um, went and interviewed a lot of these people who were not affiliated with the case originally. So Manson's original motive as claimed by Vincent Bugliosi, who was the lead prosecutor on the case, uh, was that he wanted to intimidate Terry Melcher, who was the previous owner of the house. And because Terry Melcher wouldn't give him a record deal and Manson really wanted to be a singer and would like hang out with uh, Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys and uh, Terry Melcher all the time before the murders. And so this reporter comes through and he starts asking a bunch of questions. And he originally was just assigned the story as a freelancer to talk to just, you know, some randos affiliated with the case, kind of get a couple of quotes and then put together a short story for the 30th anniversary of the case. It's 1999. And he starts to talk to people and he starts realizing that like there's holes in the story. There's other motives that could have been affiliated. Like uh, Frykovsky was a uh, wannabe drug dealer and was dealing in a lot of narcotics, LSD, uh, MDMA, and um, (laughs) several other drugs. And there was a couple of other guys who were affiliated with his uh, selling habits and the FBI was already watching them and knew they were smugglers and uh, Charles Taycott and Billy Doyle. And the reporter talked to them, Bob, uh, Robert, (laughs) Tom, Tom, good old Tom, Tom O'Neill talked to these guys and they were like 74 and crusty and old and like violent outbursts of like you talk to this about anybody and I'll fucking kill you I will fucking kill you and then I'm like guy you are 74 years old like what are you gonna do wobble at him like gum him to death did you bring your dentures like what are you doing shouldn't you be out driving with your blinker on somewhere like what are you doing and just super threatening to O'Neill and O'Neill did uncover some connection to OSS and CIA and so they couldn't have they couldn't have done the murders because 
they were in Jamaica at the time. And O'Neill even like blanket statements, this whole book, he's like, Charles Manson did do this. Mm-hmm. Like there's no other suspects, but there are other motives that weren't really explored. And there is holes in the case that Bugliosi presents. There are lies that I caught him in. There are several like collusions between him and witnesses of more unsavory character. And Terry Melcher specifically is a big fat fibber. And um, there's a lot of like weird things that happen, like uh, specifically this instance. So Robert, um, God damn it, Robert. No, Roman, <laughs> Roman oh. Polanski. Um, Roman Polanski, the director who has had controversy his whole career because he's Roman fucking Polanski and he's a shitbag. Uh, at least according to everyone who knows him. And They'd know I don't, best, know. You I don't know Roman Polanski personally. Maybe he's a great guy. I doubt it. The name um, sends up red flags for me. I'm like, you know what? I don't know a whole lot, but I feel like there were some bad headlines for a while. Yeah. And most of it came out when uh, the Harvey Weinstein thing did. So it's kind of in the same realm. Yeah. You don't want your name associated with it. I think he's won some Oscars. I don't remember. He's a big name in directing. All I know is that. And, uh, Sorry, I gotta get my drink is in. <laughs> um, so Roman Polanski was married to Sharon Tate, and um, he was rumored to be very abusive. Uh, Sharon Tate's friends did not like him. Sharon was even thinking about leaving him. There was a lot of rumor surrounding it, though, and so none of it was really confirmed. Um, she was eight months pregnant with his child though, when she was killed. And so there's some debate as to whether she was thinking about leaving or if she was gonna stay. And in the evidence, they found a video in the attic of Sharon Tate being forced to have sex with two other men that were not Roman Polanski. And Vince Bugliosi told the police Put that back where you found it. In the attic? And they did. And apparently the police witnessed Roman Polanski going up there and like quietly pocketing the video and coming back down and being like, all right, cool guys, bye. And Bugliosi was just like, it was a video of them making love and we gave it back to the family to respect their privacy. Hmm. And that's a big fat lie. Uh, according to this reporter. Um, so Tom O'Neill, he's the author of this book, right? Mm-hmm. Who did he hear that from? I think he heard that from one of the cops who had worked the case. Mm. And I I would have to like open it up and show you, but he does list the source for yeah. it. Um, he lists the source for a lot of his stuff and a lot of them are questionable. I'll, I'll grant that. So there is a lot of, skepticism and salt that you have to give these witnesses but you got to understand most of hollywood was on drugs at the time and so they're like, all he talks, unreliable narrators exactly and so he t- he goes and he talks to the lawyer who defended manson i can't remember his name it's like Car- Car- canara kamara um one second canara kamara would be a great band name right <laughs> defense lawyer Irving Kanarek Kanarek okay 
And Irving's so a great we, lawyer name. Yeah. That sounds so, like authoritative. Right. I, I think he sounds like a great name. He's got a great picture up in his, in his bio on Google. Um, but so Tom O'Neill goes and talks to him and dude's straight up just living like a hobo. All of his teeth are missing. He just like spits when he talks and makes him drive around Hollywood for four hours because it's the first time he's had a fucking car to actually get anywhere. And so he makes Tom drive him around in Los Angeles and uh, buy him lunch and he's like screaming at the table he scares like other diners away the man smells like he hasn't showered in three weeks and this is uh, I think like 1999 when he finally interviewed this dude and he didn't finish the book until 2019 uh, his initial deadline was 1999 and he missed the deadline by about 30 years 20 years two decades by about 20 years yeah. okay I'm gonna tell my editor not to give me grief if I miss my deadline by a couple hours <laughs> listen this dude missed it by 20 years you don't want that do you huh, it's so threat. uh suffice to say then you know Tom O'Neill in writing this it's not just you know with the the mindset of oh we're gonna set the record straight like facts matter all of that like lame yeah. journalist stuff it's also got like real consequences like if other people committed crimes leading up to the murders that's like mm -hmm. a big deal yeah and there's so there's a lot of other suspects that had motive to kill a lot of these people like roman polanski kind of had motive to kill sharon if she was going to leave him and he was abusive that's a common motive among abusive spouses of like, if I can't have you, no one can. Mm -hmm. Or um, the drug dealers that Frykowski was involved with, or the mobsters that Jay Sebring was involved with because he was hanging out in Vegas with people like, uh, uh, I think it was Italian mob um, that were floating around Vegas in the casinos. And this, it was, I mean, it was 1969. Everybody was run by the mob. Um, so, I mean... And one of Sebring's employees got a phone call from the mobsters after the murders and was like, don't worry, you're taken care of. You don't need to worry about a thing. And then like they hung up and like, Burr. and he, O'Neill got that from the guy that worked for Sebring. Wow. Um, so it, it, the whole book is full of like, well, that's weird. <laughs> hey, that's really weird. Oh no, that's not normal. Oh God, what is this? What is happening? And now and, all of these weird things are like semi-connected and you're like, yeah. And you start to wonder why was the prosecutor just so full of shit? Because like he had a case he did and it would have been complicated and convoluted, but he had a case. Like the jury only took like two hours to convict Manson. It did not take long. That is shockingly fast for a murder yeah. trial. Dude did not do well in court he screamed a lot he yelled at everybody he cut swastikas into his forehead like it was all theatrics and everybody knew he did it and except apparently his lawyer <laughs> who is now like borderline homeless yeah Poor and Irving. yeah he was screaming at the at O'Neill, it was like, Charlie didn't even do anything he wasn't even involved he didn't know they were gonna go kill those guys like dude was convinced so i'm like i don't believe anything you say now was this a uh, court appointed attorney or a charles manson hired one i haven't found out who hired him yet okay 
Um, cause he, he talks to O'Neill about that. He was like, it might surprise you who hired me. <laughs> I'm like, okay, get to the point, man. Just say X person hired me. Yeah. I don't know. The whole thing is weird, but there are some people who just like straight up won't talk about it still to this day. People like De Niro, Angelica Houston, like big names. And apparently they were all just like running in the same circles and the beach boys, Dennis Wilson, um, like lived with the family fucked most of them um like was not a good dude and let them like live at his house and uh at one point after the murders they didn't suspect Manson for like four months but apparently everyone else in Hollywood knew who did it and no one told the cops but everyone knew it was Manson because he's running in all these circles. He ho- he has these girls for these big executive business parties and that he just provides because that's who he is. And, you know, it's just, there's a lot of questions floating around about who knew about what and why didn't they come forward and what else do they know about? It seems wild that someone as obviously unstable as Charles Manson could like float around in those circles. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like, you know, prior to even the murders, you would get some sort of weird vibe off of that person and be like, "Mm, maybe I don't want him around me. Just a thought. Well, and it's, it's funny you say that because the beach boys were starting to get like turned away from clubs because everybody knew that they were involved with, with Manson. And this was before he was even arrested. And some of these guys, so Terry Melcher supposedly got Manson to record with the Beach Boys recording artist and the recording artist was like three sessions in and said don't fucking let that guy back in here I will not record him again so like, some people have their girls are minors right? yeah so it, like he brings in all these minors and then like picks his fingernails with a fucking knife and then Ew. threatens everyone with it like <laughs> get this guy out of my fucking office uh, yeah, that seems like a normal reaction. Yeah. He also like smells like a diaper. Like he's that good. <laughs> the real, the real crime there. Mm-hmm. Smelling bad. He was, yeah, he, I mean, he was giving everybody drugs and providing people with essentially like willing sex dolls who wanted to just fuck older men because that's what Charles told him to do. And it was just, it was awful. Hmm. So immersed. (laughs) Apparently there's a connection to the CIA that I haven't gotten to yet. Yeah. So, I mean, once you get to that CIA connection uh, and and finish this, um, this expose, are you going to be writing anything on it for Coffee or Die? Mm -hmm. Yep. We're going to put this story in the print mag for uh, the next quarter. And so this one's going to have a deadline of October 1st. And oh. I got to get that in. So. Oh, you better uh, finish. finish. Book. <laughs> <laughs> you said you were on chapter four. So I'm a little concerned for you now. Me too. Cause I've been like taking notes too at the same time. So it takes me like twice as long to get through a chapter. And I'm like, mm, I need to refill my Adderall. <laughs> Speaking of drugs. <laughs> well, um, Okay, so people can obviously look for it in the January edition. Um, is there any other like writing that you want to point people toward if they want to see kind of what you do? I, I know you write about anthropological things for us sometimes, so that's really cool. Yeah, 
I, I love when I get to do those stories. So um, one big feature that we've got on coffeeordie.com right now is the story on the DPAA, the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, and their lab over at Offutt Air Force Base and their project with the USS Oklahoma. And I'm fingers crossed trying to get coffee or die to pay for me to go out to Hawaii on the seventh <laughs> where they reinter the guys who they couldn't identify. And I want to go to that December 7th ceremony. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, been a huge project. I, I know, it, um, was a big thing a couple of years ago when all of the, um, North Korean POW mm-hmm. like remains were sent over. Like, I think, is that the same lab or is it a different one that handled those doing the like IDs? Yeah. So they handled those ones in the Honolulu lab. So they have a big lab on joint base Pearl Harbor Hickam. And then they have a large lab on the Offutt Air Force Base. Offutt handles a lot of the like Mediterranean and uh, European footprint. And then the Honolulu lab handles a lot of the Indo-Pacific. Okay. Um, And then the Offutt will also do like South America and Northern Hemisphere stuff. Oh, that's really awesome. Well, cool. Well, is there anywhere else that um, people can find you? Do you have any like social media platforms to plug or anything? Yeah, you can find me on at Kunsi Woonsi on uh, Twitter and Instagram. And uh, I used to have a podcast. Uh, It's the Naughty Archaeologist. That's N-A-U-T-I because I'm clever. I got two episodes in and was like, this is too research intensive. And I already do research for work. So, right. You just got to find a way to like turn your work research into podcast episodes. Exactly. <laughs> then you'll be all set. Cause that sounds like an awesome show. Yeah. It was good for two episodes. <laughs> <laughs> and then you were like, okay, this oh, is too hard. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I did a couple of shipwrecks and told the story of the shipwrecks. And then that was it. Oh. Um, so that's uh, the Naughty Archaeologist podcast available on podcast things I think I don't know I haven't checked it in like six months Um, that's like me with my professional website I'm like I paid for it once doesn't it exist forever (laughs) Uh, but yeah at Kunzi Wootsie with c-o-o-n-t-z-y-w-o-o-n-t-z-y and uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram Awesome. Well, thank you so much for hanging out, Lauren. I loved uh, hearing all about your takes on fairy tales and also Charles Manson. Oh yeah. He's a, he's a peach. Too much rent. Yeah. (laughs)